and welcome to this, the 40th episode in the second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, artistic director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And this week we are not coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar, because I am coming to you from a location in the West End of London, which will become clear all in due course. And of course, this second series is brought to you thanks to the very generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland. Now, each week we bring you these conversations absolutely free of charge. We promise we won't ever charge for this podcast, but we are looking for you to support Irish theatre, to put your money into Irish theatre, and to put your money where your mouth is. The whole ethos behind this podcast is to support, promote, and celebrate all that is great about Irish theatre. And the simplest way for you to go and support is to go and buy yourself some theatre tickets. But, you know, if you find yourself in a situation where maybe tickets are outside your reach this week or this month, go on over to one of the crowdsourcing websites, the fundit.ies, the Indiegogos. See if you can find a theatre project there that is looking for your support and go and see if you can back that project. But, of course, there are ways you can support without even having to put your hand in your pocket. Go and tell people about this podcast. The bigger the platform you get for us, the bigger the platform we can afford to these artists who come on and have these conversations with us. So do please tell them whether that's in person over a cup of coffee or a pint or by sharing the link as a Facebook post or retweeting on Twitter or posting something on Instagram. Any of those social media channels are a huge boost for us. Do please go and subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes if you can. But of course, the podcast is available for streaming and for direct download over at riseproductions.ie. And for you Android users, it's available on Podbean, it's available on Acast and all those other platforms, so don't worry about it. Go back and listen to the other podcast episodes if you get a chance. There's great stuff both in Series 1 and in Series 2. If you can, leave us a review on iTunes. That's a huge help for us over there. Or you can simply click to rate us on their five-star rating system. And as ever, you can follow us on Facebook. We are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland. Or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rise Ireland. And it's been another busy week here at Rise Towers. I have been flat out seeing as much theatre as I possibly can. Uh, and I've been doing really well. I've been seeing some amazing stuff. Um, I got in to see my uh, residency roommates, uh, Glass Mask in Smock Alley, with their production of Idleworld. Fair play to Rex Ryan, doing a cracking job there. And also got to see Philly McMahon's phenomenal work on Come On Home. Just an incredible piece of theatre from everyone involved. One of those magical moments where every single cog in the machine really gels, really clicks together, and just an exceptional piece of theatre, guys. Um, writing on a level that, and this is the weird thing to try, even try and talk about it this way, Philly's always been great. I've always been a huge fan of Philly. Like He's an exceptional writer. This play does feel like a significant gear shift, though, and it's one of those ones where you can't actually discuss the play without mentioning the Marina Cars and the Tom Murphys of the world uh, in the best sense possible. Like It's a, just a cracking piece of writing. The architecture of the play, the structure of it is just exquisite. All the design elements coming together brilliantly. Excellent direction. And this cast knocking it out of the park. Just an absolute joy to behold. Really, really incredible stuff. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, this is coming to you from the West End because I'm over on a brief trip to London to go and see some more stuff over here. I'm going to see um, the Lieutenant of Inish Moore this evening, Friday, uh, to see all the gang in that. And then tomorrow, Saturday, I'll be checking out the very last night of Translations at the National, which has, of course, Lawrence Kinlan and Judith Roddy and all kinds of great people in it too. Uh, so a brief trip over to London to try and cram in some great theatre over here, but also to record some podcasts. And so that brings us to our guest this week, who is none other than one of the stars of Lieutenant of Inish Moore. It's, of course, the great Dennis Conway. And Dennis and I go back an awful long way. Dennis worked on the second show that I ever did back when I was still a 15 or 16-year-old kid. And uh, someone I've got a chance to work together with quite a bit over the years. And someone I really like and really respect. Um, a phenomenal actor who has played some of the biggest parts from some of the biggest writers and some of the biggest shows and just keeps knocking out of the park every time. So, look, let's get straight to it. Here he is, the brilliant Dennis Conway. <laughs> The wonderful Dennis Conway. Here we are for the crack. How are you keeping, my friend? I'm good, Angus. How are you? I am very well indeed. Delighted to be here with you. Take me back to the very beginning, as we start every episode. What was the initial spark for you of an interest in theatre? So I come from a little uh, rural area in Cork, and amateur theatre is very strong there. And the Mocker and the Firma were very strong there. And we had a teacher at school who made us put 
aluminium foil on pieces of wood and they turned into canes and we sang under the old linden tree and I remember loving being on stage for so the first time I remember so it wasn't from seeing seeing anything right it was actually from doing stuff in national school and I remember I had to sing the Red River Valley with a girl called Mary Collin on my knee when I was about nine and I thought I like this now. yes <laughs> that's so that's the kind of I mean I suppose I knew when I was nine that I should be an actor right now there's a long story after that but that's that's when I got the initial now my mother was very involved in amateur dramatics uh, when she grew up in Manchester all her brothers were and I grew up with photographs of and reviews of plays so it was in the, it was in the blood yes but it but as you said in rural Cork at the time not a huge amount of opportunity to go and see a lot of work not a huge opportunity, and the idea of being a professional just didn't exist at yeah. all. Even subsequently after university, I, I wasn't aware of the possibility of being an actor. It's kind of weird. Yeah, I was more focused on something else, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So then the route is a little circuitous. You don't go straight to Rada at eighteen. Um, <laughs> talk to me about that route in because it's been quite an interesting road for you. Yeah, I, I like it's. If, I don't know how long you have. Or should we keep going anyway? Um, so. I did an awful lot of that kind of stuff in national school and then I went to a boarding school and in boarding school the fourth years oh no there was no fourth year in those years the fifth years had on, on it was presentation brothers on pres day which is about the 21st of November or something like that there was an onus on the fifth years to put on a concert they right. had to organize it they had to they would get some of the brothers to direct stuff and I remember my brother, Jared, who was in the same class as me as it happens, that's another story, but Jared was in a play about coal mining, coal miners being stuck in a coal mine. And I was playing a barber with a big sh a knife. Now, it wasn't a barber, it wasn't, you know, two small one-act plays. So we were the kind of the two guys, people, but they're good, those guys are good. So, like, he could be an actor too. Uh, many of my family could have been actors, because right. they're all involved in amateur dramatics, okay. more or less. So, so that was very successful. So that was secondary school. And then I went on to university. And my main interest in university, which wasn't the chemistry I should have been interested in, which, although I did come up with a degree, um, my main interest at the time was Gaelic football. Right. So there was all these opportunities. I was living with these. I was living with a guy called Jack Healy and Con Healy, who were very involved in UCC dramat. And eventually, Jack said to me, just from living with him, he said, "You should be an actor." And I, I said, "How do you know?" And he said, "I just know." Anyway, so cut to, I performed the water cellar in the Good Woman of Setuan for Jack, and in my H Dip year, which is the fifth year in university, I did S B O'Donnell in Philadelphia. Wow. Here I come. Okay. An introduction to Brian Friel. Cut to first job I applied. There was nothing in Ireland, almost a bit like it was a few years ago in the 80s, in 84, 80, 84, 85. I answered an ad in what was then the Cork Examiner for a chemistry teacher in Zimbabwe. So off I went. That's not the most obvious choice for most people. No. That's a big adventure. It is, and I was, but I was 24, and I didn't... Someone said to me, now, the thing about Zimbabwe, and I said, I don't want to know anything about it. I'm getting on a plane, and, and I don't know I where I'm going. <laughs> so I was that... Like, I'm a kind of, I suppose, if you're going to be an actor, you have to have the ability to jump off a cliff, because anybody with any amount of sense would not be doing what we do, this right? This is very true. So we're a bit mad. Yeah. So, so that's a sign of actually something to come in the future, just getting on that plane and going to Zimbabwe. And I did, and Jack Healy and the lads in the house gave me a present, a going away present, of Brian Friel Place. Okay? Okay. And it's all, I still have it, it's in tatters now, but I still have it, it's very precious to me. And I took that to Zimbabwe, and one of the first things I did when I got there was, it was like, you know, I was teaching in a school which was a mixed black, white, Indian, you name it, they were all there, different tribes of whites and blacks and everything. It would have been an all-white school four years previous. So Zimbabwe had just got its independence. Okay. So Mugabe had come into power. He's just gone. That's how long ago it is. 1980, he came into power. And I went there in 84, 85. February 85, I think I got there. Um, so the school was still... There was a white ethos. So it was rugby, cricket, drama. Right. Well, and the kids all... So I ended up 
coaching rugby, which I knew nothing about, so I had to join the local club. And I did two productions, one of Inherit the Wind and one of Ziggler Zagger, both of which won the Zimbabwe Schools National Competition. Wow, okay. So it was obviously there in me. Yeah. So, like this, and still no thought of being an actor, by the way. And in the local theatre club, I introduced them to Brian Friel. And we did Philadelphia Here I Come. This was your missionary work in Zimbabwe, bringing exactly. Brian Friel to the masses. So we did Philadelphia Here I Come in the local theatre club. And the Zimbabweans loved it. And they got it because they have a huge history of emigration to South Africa. Okay. In the way we emigrated to England. Yeah. So they completely got us. So it went down a, a bomb. And actually, that was nominated for all sorts of awards and all sorts of things as well. But this is all amateur stuff, yeah. right? So then cut to, so three years later, I come home. Jack Healy, he keeps coming back. He was here only yesterday. I love enough. <laughs> Jack wrote me a letter and he said, look, my son, before I went away, by the way, I did one last thing, which is kind of interesting. Um, in my dip year, after we did... Um, Philadelphia here I come we did a tour around the gymnasiums in Germany of a thing called Irish History Through Theatre which was written by Johnny Hanron who eventually formed Meridian Theatre yeah. Company in Cork so we did basically we did pieces from John Bull's Other Island from Philadelphia here I come just to explain the history of Ireland through theatre and the person who played Gar Private to my Gar Public was Graham Norton amazing yeah who is then Graham Walker. There is a pitch in yeah. that, a West End run of yeah. you and Graham Walker. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so and we, were, we just did the rosary scene or whatever. Right. Right. So anyway, so Jack wrote to me subsequently in Zimbabwe and said, look, Johnny Hannon and myself and Kieran Ahern and a couple of more guys are forming this professional theatre company and we'd love you to be part of it if you, if you ever decide to come home. And actually it was a kind of the... I was thinking about whether I'd stay in Zimbabwe forever right. or come home. And actually, that was the thing that meant I, I need to go home. So basically then, to cut a very long story short, I got a job with a friend of mine in the what was then the RTC in Limerick, which is now LIT. And my friend was in charge of the timetable, and he said to me, there's a part-time job here for you, and if you do 10 hours a week, um, you'll get an EPT status, which means you get paid during the holidays and stuff. Great. So he said, when would you like your 10 hours? And I said, on a Monday. And he laughed. And he went, we'll sort it. So I got all my hours between Monday and Tuesday. I was finished at lunchtime on Tuesday. Wow. And I joined Meridian Theatre Company in Cork. And I was, I suppose you could say, I was semi-professional. Right. We were professional, but I wasn't getting paid because I was earning. And I did that for about three years. And then I was offered a full-time job in this place. And I had to make a decision. I was 30. And I went. So 30 years of age full-time offer on the table yeah. from this third level institution yeah that's a very hard yeah. thing to say no so there is jumping off the cliff so Certainly i was back is. on the plane again and as i say to people anyway i jumped i said i have to give it a go somewhere at that stage it was in me and we had some very successful shows in meridian like valpone and stuff and people were going you're really good and stuff yeah. because i didn't know i mean i'm not trained or anything so so i'll give it a go and the first and of course to do that you couldn't live as a professional actor in Cork, certainly not then. Maybe yeah. now you could, I don't know. I had to leave. Right. I had to leave. I'd just broken up with a girlfriend too after a while, so it was all a bit, it was a change of life. I found 30 hard, actually, turning 30 after. The, the 40 and 50 were easy. <laughs> um, but anyway, so, so I moved to Dublin, and the first five years were the hardest. In fact, the first 10. And I worked from seventh night from the left. I mean, I knocked the doors basically and got, you know, um, I got an agent and then I got uh, bits, parts. And eventually, so I worked away some nice-ish roles for the first 10 years. And then Michael, who's now known as Michael Barker-Caven and was then called Michael Caven, I became quite friendly with him through his wife, actually, Sharon, because I met her through Ray Yates. Weird, it's a weird story. Anyway. So I got to know Michael when he came to Ireland and I, we, we became good friends and he said to me when I was 39, he said, you should play Richard III. And he said, I can't promise we'll do it, but it would be next September. So my son was born in February 2000 and I said to Elaine, my wife, and she was going back to work after her maternity leave. And she took a lot of the maternity leave before the baby was born, so there wasn't that much afterwards. 
I said, you know what, Elaine, you go back to work and I'll stay at home and I'll prepare Richard III while I'm minding Oshin. Wow. And I, I, I spent nine months working on it, just on my own, just knowing it, getting to know it. And I have to say, Michael had taught me a way to do Shakespeare with rules that some people don't like. I loved them. And if you apply them, and it's hard, mm. eventually you get this kind of beacon of like of light going, oh, that's why it works. And it took a while, and then about two months into that preparation, I went out every day to the park. I live in Kilmainham. It's a lovely place. There's a beautiful park there called the Memorial Park. I'd walk us in the thing, and I would say the lines out loud. And I basically learned the whole play, including everybody else's lines. Now, a man pushing a buggy through a park in Kilmainham reciting Richard III out loud wouldn't be the most normal sight to encounter on a day out. Yeah, funny. And that was before mobile phones, because now everybody's talking. <laughs> Nobody takes any notice now. No, people would look at me askance. But what was really interesting was there was a line that Richard has to Buckingham, who's his comrade in arms, until he turns on Buckingham. And Buckingham says, well, what about that land you promised me, whatever it was? And he has a line and he says, I'm not in the giving vein today. And I used to practice with that, things like, I'm not in the giving vein today. And Oshin would peel with laughter. Right. Every time I said it, he and like he was, he was three months old. Yeah. He would laugh at the sound of this, and I went, "I'm onto something here." So I, and since then, by the way, Angus, my favourite part of the job is walking down by the river, learning lines. Really? Yeah. Some people like to keep things really fresh in inverted commas and kind of have a uh, casual enough yeah. arrangement with lines. You strike me as a man who likes. The work and the yeah, plan. I'd be the exact opposite to that. Yeah, if I would, I would love. It's great if you know what's coming up and you can prepare because actually, if you're really off book, I mean really off book. So you kind of you know all the other people's lines in the way that some people might say. Now everyone's different. I'm not making a yeah. judgment call. I'm just saying that for me, the the, the better I know it the freer I am in a rehearsal room, yeah. rather than being restricted by a way of learning it. Yeah. I'm totally free. I can try anything. And we had, the, with this show, for example, Michael Grandage operates on the basis that people are pretty much off book. And we all wore for this. And the rehearsal was just great crack. Yeah, it's a funny, because I mean, people will say, oh no, but if you're you know, word perfect on day one, you'll be completely tied into that way of work and you'll have no freedom. But you think, a bit like with those Shakespearean rules from Michael, that once you have that structure within which you can play, that that's where the freedom is maybe. Totally, because we all know, like, if you think about it, supposing you're the kind of actor that says, no, I, I prefer to just be familiar and I learn it as we go along. Even those actors will admit that after, say if you're lucky enough to have an eight to ten week run, it's four weeks in before you really start to go, oh, yeah. right? Now, if you already know the stuff at the beginning, you'll get to that stage by the end of rehearsals. Yeah. So you're really playing on the first night yeah. as opposed to just biting your nails and getting through it, which happens too. Fingers crossed I yeah. remember those cuts. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So no, I would definitely operate on the basis. That's just for me though. It's yeah. not a judgment call. I, I know it works for me because of my experience with Richard III. Yeah. Totally accidental, child born. It just all fitted in. And actually, Richard changed my career. What was it about that that you feel was so changing? Was it the fact of just throwing yourself into a part as big and as challenging and as complex as that? Or was it something as simple as the response to it opened doors? Or a bit of both? The response to it was phenomenal. It was a very good production. Michael is a terrific director. And it was one of those, I mean, Fidel McCullen, I remember, played Queen Margaret, Lord Mercina. And Fidelma, at that stage, had a lot of stuff under her belt. And she used to look at me and she'd wink and she'd go, this is really good. And she wouldn't say that casually. Yeah. And it was really good. And all the people in it were really good. And it was a great... It was one of those, everything was right. It was a great atmosphere. There was no fighting. There was no bitching. There was no... It was just... It was proper. Yeah. And the audience, they... they I mean, there was, here's, here's the story for you. So in, in Michael's kind of uh, terminology, there are, say, 10 beats in a line, okay? So... I operate on that, and you stop at the end of the line, every line. 
but you do it in such a way it doesn't sound like you're doing it. This is the challenge. I won't get into that because that could take too long. But in one speech, I said to Michael, I said, it was just after the Lady Anne scene. And in the Lady Anne scene, the Lady Anne scene is the second scene. And the audience have to believe that Richard is in love with Lady Anne or there is no play. Right. And to do that, you have to weep, you have to cry, and you have to convince her and them that you're sincere. And then he says, when she leaves, was ever woman in this humour wooed? And he's giggling. And the audience is going, oh, he's a bastard. Right? <laughs> was ever woman in this humour won? I'll have her but I'll not keep her long. And in rehearsals, I said, the next line is what? One beat. I said, where are the other nine beats? And we, we couldn't figure it out until the first preview. And I went, was ever woman in this humour wooed? Was ever woman in this humour won? I'll have her, but I'll not keep her long. Oh, Jesus Christ Almighty, that's what I heard at the back. Yeah. And people started laughing. So they took the nine beats. Shakespeare tells you to give the audience space. And at the end of it, I went to a real cork accent because it's good for this. I went, what? <laughs> Brought the house down. So, and it, we're off then. Yeah. From there on, it's a bit like after Duncan is killed yeah. in the Scottish play, the play takes off. It's the stuff before that that matters though. Yeah. Now, I subsequently played that part and the stuff before it never got a chance to breathe because the kids who were watching it were not interested at all in the Hamlet side. Yeah, anyway. that, hap that happens too. Um, it did you feel like it opened up doors for you? Oh, no, no doubt about it. I mean, what was really interesting was that people who would have thought of me as the seventh knight from the left sure. came to see this. And a few of them had not given me work, by the way, as well. And I remember a couple of them sitting in me, sitting in the dressing room in the Samuel Beckett Theatre, very quiet, going, you're really good. And I was kind of, of course, the car packed me and going, so I fucking told you that is. <laughs> it did, it changed things. Yeah. Because, but, it, but more importantly, it changed me. I wasn't prepared to play the Seven Night from the Left anymore. Okay. There's nothing wrong with playing the Seven Night from the Left, by the way. Absolutely. That's how you learn your craft. But there, there comes a time when you have to go, okay, am I happy doing this? And if you are, that's fine. But if you're not, you need to move on. And there's a sacrifice involved. So, for example, I did not get offered any work in that nine months. Right. Now, I wasn't going to be available anyway, but there was no offers coming in either. Yeah. So that's the, that is the sacrifice I made. And I learned a number of things from that. Number one, preparation, how yeah. important it is. And number two, that if you want to move on, you have to say no. And that's hard when you need the money. Well, here's the thing, right? So for all of us freelance actors, the impulse to instantly, yes, absolutely, I'll yeah. be there. Of course I can ride a horse. Of course I know fencing. Oh, here, I'll, here. I'll be there. <laughs> and you just say yes. Yeah. Particularly then when you throw another spanner, spanner in the works and say, now there's another mouth to feed in your house. Absolutely. How tough is it to have the courage or conviction to say, I have to turn that down because something better will come? Or just that the the career arc for me won't make well, sense. Well, funny enough, the, see the the, the 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 good thing about Ireland and the and the bad thing about Ireland is that it's small. So once you've broken the mold and you play Richard III, for example, you're not going to be offered the Seven Night from the Left. Mm. So actually, the offers become better. The bad side of it is that you're pigeonholed. So you kind of go, I know he couldn't play that, he's too cork or he's, yeah. and you go, so you have to break that, but that takes time. But, but the good thing about it is that they go, you can't offer that to him. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like you wouldn't say, you wouldn't say, should Declan Connolly would play that's two lines, he'd tell you to where to go, do you know what I <laughs> mean? Yeah. So, and you get, and also I was at an age. Now, the thing is I came to the business late. Right. So when I was 40, I was still only in real terms 29. Yes. If you came into the business at 19. Yeah. So I was still fresh and people still looked at me as being fresh. Do you know what I'm yeah. saying? So it took a bit longer than it should have. Okay. Because, you know, I was never going to play the Juve anyway. Yeah. Even if I did go into the business at 19, I don't have those kind of looks. Yes. So I was always going to be a character actor. So, yeah. you know what I mean? So anyway, so Richard did change things. And then Michael was running this company called Theatre Works and we did great work. Like mm. we did... Um, I sure loads of stuff, but for example, I played Salieri in Mozart. I played uh, Macbeth. You know, big yeah. stuff. And so then, talk to me about the transition into Ouroboros and how 
you felt that was important for you in terms of, I guess, shape and career as well, and telling the stories you wanted to tell, making the shows you wanted to make? Well, that's a funny one because that was a kind of a, you know, a, some have greatness thrust upon them sort of thing. <laughs> uh, we changed the name from Theatre Works to Ouroboros, first of all, because there was a, there, uh, we, we became more professional, so the board became more important and you know, the Arts Council were making demands and stuff. And we, we just became more professional. And there was a feeling from um, some of the women involved, particularly, that it was a very male name, Theatre Works, and that it didn't really reflect the mystical kind of work that we did, which was kind of, I suppose, Catholic would be the best term. Okay. And Michael, being from, you know, uh, an, an English Catholic, his, his dad was from Cork, funnily enough, but you'd never think it if you spoke to him, but... Uh, Michael would have been brought up in Catholic England, and uh, so he's very much into astrology and mysticism and very Catholic stuff, incense, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And the stuff we did, Richard being the example, I mean, at one point, for example, there was a statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and I spat at it. So there was always an element of that in the work that we did. A very good example was, and it was one of the best pieces we did, I think, a lot of my friends say, say this anyway, was um, Tales from Ovid. Yes. You know, and it was very theatrical, and but very, again, in fact, at the beginning of that, there was a circle made on the, and again, the Sam Becker stage, which I love, um, there was a circle of earth, which me, as the caretaker, cleaned up and then lit, not incense, but um, sage. Okay. So there was a very, and friends of mine who were Catholics, as it happens, who went, there was something very sacred went on there. So they're in, you know, so, so we were in there. Anyway, so Theatre Works became Ouroboros because we put the word out with our circle. We said, look, we're looking at something like Phoenix rising from the ashes, something that reflects what we're about. And two people came back with Ouroboros. And I, I wasn't one. But when I saw the symbol, I meant, that's, that's us. So we went with that. Now, Michael subsequently went back to England for family reasons and other reasons. So basically, it was a case of what we're we going to do. So for a while, Ferdia Murphy, who was a designer, and Sinead Cuthbert, who was this costume designer, and myself tried to run it. And then we said, look, this doesn't work. So they both said to me, look, will you run it? So I thought, now, one of the things I'm proudest of in my career, of all things, is that I always wanted to do something for the, the anniversary of the flight of the Earls, which is a huge, I believe, very strongly, that Ireland changed in 1603. That Hugh O'Neill was a major, major loss to our country. And that things could have been very different, particularly up north now. Right. None of this shit would be going on. Do you know what I mean? That's my opinion. And maybe it's romantic and maybe it's kind of, you know, rose-coloured glasses and all that. But anyway... I read Shauna Fuelon's book. Oh, just cut back. In 1993, I did a production of Making History with Brian Brady. Did you indeed? In Rome, with a company called European Players. Wow. Who took plays that had associations between Ireland and Italy every year, and one of them obviously is Making History, because Hugh O'Neill is buried in Rome. So I played Hugh O'Neill in Rome, and when I was there I thought, this should tour the route that O'Neill took to, to Rome. Wow. This play, because I love the play. And it's Brian Friel again. Yeah. So anyway, so I thought, the problem with plays like this, like to raise the kind of money that would be needed to do that, I thought, you have to be strategic. So what I did was, my first job as artistic director was I put on Making History in the Samuel Beckett Theatre. I got a director... I auditioned people, here was me in my little kitchen, the actor auditioning directors. And I won't say what happened, but eventually this guy came in called Jeff Gould, who was recommended to me by another actor called Mickey Pat Sullivan. And Jeff came into my kitchen. And all the other people, and I would be like this myself in an interview, you're trying to please, and the, the director says to you as an actor, you go, well, I think it's fine. I think, oh, that's a really good idea, or whatever. Yeah. So this is what Jeff said. Jeff said, a Corkman, he says, uh, hold on there a second now before we start. So you're playing O'Neill, Philip O'Sullivan is playing Archbishop Lombard, Sinead Cuthbert is doing costumes, and Ferdy Murphy's designed the set. What do you want me for? <laughs> 
It's a fair shout. And I said, well, you have to cast the rest of it and direct it. He said, if you if you employ me, I direct, not you. And that's all he said. And I said, you've got the job. Yeah. I just loved him. And we have become really, really close friends. Really close friends. He's a fantastic guy. And he's one of the nicest and beautiful directors I've ever had. Anyway, so we did that. So we did that in 2006. So we had all, and I knew it would be good. We got great reviews and it was really well received. And we used all that to sell the idea. The, the, the 400th anniversary of the flight of the Earth mm. was 2007. So we had 12 months to prepare and we raised over 600,000. Good between, between Yes. Well, that's the kind of money it Yeah, costs. of course it is. And I remember saying to one of the, uh, one of the um, supporters uh, later on, subsequently, when I was looking for money for something else, he said, uh, how did the, the making history go? And I said, packed. So we did it in. So by the way, I don't know if you have time for this, but I'll tell you the story. Do. So Jeff and I said, okay, I had an old banged up mir- um, Peugeot, like a tractor it was. Hmm. So we sat in, the reason we're friends is we sat in that car, we started in Kinsale, at the back side of Kinsale, we said, right, we'll do it here, somewhere. And then we, we went on the journey. We didn't know the journey that O'Neill took back from Kinsale, but we knew the journey he took to Kinsale, and we knew the journey O'Donnell took to Kinsale, and we knew the journey that O'Neill took from Ireland to Rome. So we said, what we'll do is, we'll do their journeys to Kinsale back the other way, and then we'll sail off from Rathmullen, the idea was we would sail in the Genie Johnson. We had all mad ideas. Wow. We didn't get, it wasn't safe, actually. It's the reason we didn't. But he got it like the government was going to give it to us. But anyway, and we, so anyway, so, so set in the car, we said, okay. So we drove from Kinsale to Rathmullen over a week and a half. And we stopped in places. And we were in Kilmallock because O'Donnell came from the west. So he came from Sligo. In fact, Ballymote he came from. And O'Neill came from Virginia in Cavan, right, uh, in the east, and they actually met somewhere around Kilmallock because Kilmallock would have been the biggest town in Munster, right in the middle of Munster. It's a wall town, so we're in Kilmallock, and this stage where basically the idea was somewhere along the road we'll find a theatre and we'll do it there. That was the original plan, and we're standing at Kilmallock, and I said to Jeff, "Do you know what, Jeff? We're thinking all wrong." And he said, "What?" And I said. That abbey there was 400 years old when, when O'Neill was here. It's now 800 years old. We have to do it in the abbey. And what we'll do is, so there's, I don't know if you're familiar with the play, but there's a scene in O'Neill's castle. Then he gets married to his arch enemy's sister, Mabel Bagnall. And she, in, in Friel's direction, there's a few cushions and curtains and flowers and stuff because she brings a woman's touch. So that's the second scene. The third scene is after the Battle of Kinsale, when they've lost in the Sperrin Mountain. It's just him and O'Donnell and Harry Hopton. And the last scene is in Rome. And I said to Jeff, I said, you know what, Jeff? We do the first scene in that abbey. We walk the audience across to that abbey, which is a bit posher. We do the second scene there. We do the third scene in the field, in the Sperrin Mountains. And we did the last scene in Rome in the theater. Wow. And then, and he went, absolutely. Act, that's ex- brilliant. Now, it was the rainiest summer. <laughs> it never stopped fucking raining, <laughs> right? So that was the plan. So everywhere we went after that. So theatres kind of went out. Yeah. So after that, we would go to places like so, um, Newcastle West. The OPW just put a new roof on Newcastle West. One of the guys, Fitzmaurice, lived in Newcastle West. We said, we'll do it there. We did it wherever we thought O'Neill or O'Donnell might have been, right. basically. Literally oh. retracing the footprints. Re- literally, literally, and following the history. So we did it in places like the Rock of Cashel. We did it in um, Ballymote Castle. We did it on Rathmullen Strand. Do you know what I mean? We did it on, we were the first people, the O'Neill lands, once, once he was, when, when he left, his estate was taken over. O'Neill, by the way, owned all of Tyrone, most of County Derry, and part of... O'Donnell owned all of Donegal. Like, these were big, big... They were kings in their own right, you know what I mean? 
you could stand on the top of O'Neill's Hill in Dungannon and you can see the Hill of Tara and you can see to Belfast. And that's on the ground. So you can imagine what you could have seen off the top of his castle. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, no, it's ex that's why they built them there, because yeah. you could see everything. So the bonfires would tell you, OK, there's a landing there. And the bonfires, all the way to Donegal, they know, right, down O'Neill needs to spill over, that kind of stuff. Anyway, once he left in 1608, um, his lands were taken over by Chichester, who took the name O'Neill. Okay. So Terence O'Neill, the first Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, was related to him. He wasn't an O'Neill. O'Neill. Wow. This is a whole other story. There right? we go. So, anyway, nobody from Dungannon, no matter what their, what side they came from, had ever set foot on Dungannon Hill because. It had been privately owned by the Chichesters and subsequently went into British authorities and eventually became a British Army post. So not until uh, 2007, the, the post had come down, because it was 10 years since the peace process. Sure. The post had come down, the hill, and they were opening the hill for a festival to the people. And the first thing that went on on that hill was Making History wow. by Brian Friel in a tent. And it was really interesting. You had Dungannon is very kind of half and half um, unionist nationalist, and you could tell from the reaction to the play where the unionists were sitting or where the nationalists <laughs> were sitting, and they were trying to outdo each other with the laughing. Right, it right, was hilarious. Okay. And the DUP Lord Mayor presented me with a plaque after. It was very ironic, and it was fantastic. <laughs> so we did it there. So we did, and then we left Ireland. So so. In 1607, they left Rathmullen and they got as far as Leuven in Belgium, where there was an Irish college, and they stayed there from February 2008 before moving down to Rome. So we did the first section in, in 2007. Yeah. And to the day we crossed the Alps, the same day on St. Patrick's Day, ironically, the same day that O'Neill crossed the Alps when he lost all his money into the ravine. And that wow. was all about And we had a big march. So we all marched in costume in the snow in the Alps with the the uh, Irish ambassador to Switzerland. What a fantastic time. Paul Brady serenaded us. Oh, come on. Uh, so fantastic. And then eventually, so we did it in places. So we did it in Strasbourg, Leuven first, Str Leuven at the end of the first year, and then again to start the second year. Leuven, Strasbourg, Basel, uh, uh, Bern, uh, a few uh, a few more places in Switzerland, and eventually a place called Viterbo, and then Rome. And we finished. We went all went to visit visit O'Neill's grave, and we did it in the Franciscan College in Rome. And it was just very special. And that was planning. I'm very proud of that. Yeah. Because I couldn't have raised the money if we hadn't have done the show first. Yeah. Because people could see what we did. And they went, that's really good. I'll support that. And a lot of people with money. I mean, we raised probably half from governmental sources and half from private sources. Wow. Yeah. That's really remarkable. Mm. People talk about theatre as holding an atmosphere, holding an essence, mm. holding a history. Presumably, though, playing that show in those places. Uh, I remember in Newcastle West. And sometimes you'd feel, and this is why the thing came to me in Kilmallock. You could feel the presence of the man. Like. Yeah. Now, maybe it's just actory stuff, but one night in, it was a very rainy summer, so we very seldom got to do what we really wanted to do. We usually ended up doing the whole thing in one room right? and sending people out and chaining it around to make it look a bit different. But one night we, had, we got good weather in Newcastle West, and the plan was we would do the first scene in the castle, a uh, quick interval, put some cushions and stuff and curtains and stuff. So we weren't building a set, we were using where we were. And we took the audience outside for the Spurn Mountain scene. And it was the most beautiful uh, August evening. Oh, stunning. And it was, at a, it was just at the cusp of twilight. So the sun was just about to go down. And Harry Hovden was telling the story of Mabel Bagnell's death. And about 4,000 crows flew overhead to rook for the evening, to go into the, the trees. Right. And it went black. 
and you could feel, I mean, I can feel it now. Yeah. Oh, and he just went, oh my God. And that happened, not specifically that, that thing, but that feeling. I remember walking into, um, where was it in, uh, yes, uh, where he signed the treaty. Uh, oh, Melifant Abbey. Oh my God. And I was down signing, and it broke his heart mm. to sign the treaty to Queen Elizabeth I. And I remember tr I had to hold myself together because I was going, oh. and you could feel him there. You could feel it, right? And the really ironic thing about all that is he signed the treaty and she had died before it got there. So he need never have done it. Oh, Lord. So, like, yeah. the Irish have never been lucky. Look, look at the Irish, me arse. <laughs> We've never been lucky in our history. We've yeah. never been lucky. We've talked a lot about Friel. I want to talk to you a bit about playing those big roles in those big plays. I mean, I'm talking about Hugh in Translations for mm. Friel, Gigli Concert for something mm. like Tom mm. Murphy, even Walworth Farce. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, you have been fortunate enough, shall we say, to yep. get the chance to really tackle these iconic roles. Mm. How do you approach them any differently to anything else? Or how do you feel that people trust you often enough with a, with a role like that, to carry a okay, show well, like you, you kind of, you know, I, I always think of Tony O'Reilly, you know, it's a funny, well, there's a theatre I called after him, of course. Uh, he was interviewed once, he was 26 or 27 or something, and he'd just become head of Heinz Beans or something like that. And some smart Alec journalist anyway was saying to him, you know, you've been very lucky though, haven't you? And he said, I have, I have. And you know, the funny thing is, the harder I work, the luckier I get. So there's a lot of that. I, I haven't been, I've been blessed with, I've been blessed with, the greatest thing I've been blessed with is getting to know Brian Friel and Tom Murphy and Enda Walsh. Right. I knew them, I'm glad to say, and two of them are gone, and I miss them. They're, they were, very special to me. So, in terms of making your own look, Gary Hines asked me, because I was now at the stage where people were going, Dennis Conway is free, do something, right? So, so Gary was interested in me, and I worked with Gary a few times. And we'd often chat, and she'd say to me, you know what you should play. She said, a lot of actors don't know. She said, you know that you can't play Hamlet, but you should play Macbeth, for example, yeah. right? So she said, you know, and I said, well, life is short. You can't play them all. <laughs> so you have to be intelligent about it and go, right, that's for me. That's not for me. Maybe I'd love to play it, but actually, you know what? There's somebody better than me to do that. And so don't be beating yourself up going, oh, that bastard's yeah. after getting that gig Exactly. Again. No, never be jealous like that at all. I, 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 I glory in other people's success. I really do. I genuinely do. Uh, particularly if they're good. Yeah. But anyway, so, so Gary was talking to me about doing... Um, the Spanish tragedy and I made a commitment to do it um, 12 months in advance or something and then Gary came back to me and said look we didn't get the money to do it so we can't do it so I said to her are you open to ideas she said I certainly am and I said the GD concert and she said would you play in the Irishman I said absolutely and she said you know what you should play what I didn't know was that Gary had fallen out with Tom Murphy but the next day she knocked at his door and uh, he said something like, ah, the prodigal daughter. <laughs> and they made up and we did the Judy concert. And with Tom's blessing. Um, and I knew Tom at this stage. Not as well as I got to know him, yeah. but I knew him. And it's the kind of part, as an Ir a rural Irishman, you, co you couldn't write better like I mean, it's not everybody's cup of tea, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But to play that part is an extraordinary experience. And I did it subsequently again. I mean, uh, I, won't talk, I won't go into the details of the Gary's production. I mean, I won an award for it and all that shite. But about four years later, was it? Michael Colgan said he was doing this in, in the gate. And I've never done this. I said to Michael Colgan, I said, I want to play that part again. And Michael would be funny because if he played it before, he'd go, you know, 
But directors, more importantly, don't want to go near you if you've played of before. So I said, uh, I really want another bash of it. And this is the right theatre for it. Okay. Because you can play that in the wrong place. Yeah. And it doesn't work. But with the proscenium arts that's in the gate, I just went... Because at this stage, remember, I've run a company for 10 years and I go, you can't do that play there, you can do it there. Because yeah. I learned by being in castles and stuff, you go, oh, that's why it works. Because, that, you know, so you start to realise what a set actually means yeah. in terms of a play. So anyway, so I said, Michael, it'll work, it'll be brilliant here. Brilliant. Um, and he said, are you prepared to audition? I said, absolutely. So David Grinley, who is now a great friend of mine, uh, auditioned me and he had the balls to go, he's done it before. He had enough balls to say, I can still make him do what I want him to do. So David, uh, he, he didn't audition me, he just chatted to me. And I said, look, David, I, and he said, I've got four weeks to do this. And I said, I can give you shortcuts because I know it. And yeah. he went, great. So we did it. And I think, with no disrespect to Gary, that was a brilliant production. Did you learn more about either the play, the character, or yourself by going back to it again to reinvestigate? I learned way more about the play. I got to know Tom better, so yeah. therefore I got to know about the genius that was Tom Murphy. I became very friendly with him. Loved him dearly. Uh, and he'd slagged me for being a Corkman. <laughs> uh, that was his way of his endearment. But I learned to... See, it's like, I remember once, right? I'm not trained, so I've learned my craft on the job. And I've worked with some brilliant directors and some very poor directors. So, I worked for a director called Laszlo Marton once. Yes. Right? In, who I hear is in trouble now over being inappropriate to women in oh Canada. Oh, Lord. Okay. Yeah, which is, you kind of go, oh, Jesus, even you. But anyway, so Laszlo, no, well, it's sure not, it's a whole other story. But anyway, Laszlo directed me in The Wild Duck and the Peacock. At the Peacock, I Which is well. a fantastic production. And I remember one day in rehearsals, and the character who played Hjalmar was constantly crying. It's not easy to do that stuff, right? You can, you can do it falsely, but to do it for real, yeah. and then to repeat it, that's the thing you have to learn, right? So, Laszlo jumped out of his seat, and he said, Dennis, Dennis, you have it, you have it. And I said, yeah, he said, no. And he pointed to his, to, to his head and said, you have it here. And his heart, he said, you have it here. And then he hit me and he said, you have to get it in your muscles. Get it in your muscles. I didn't get the GD in my muscles until the second production. Okay. So I, I, I started, I had time to apply. So basic getting in your muscles is basically, if at the point at which you broke down, you picked up your cup, by the process of picking up the cup, reminds your body of the emotion. So it helps you to get there on the night when it's not happening. Sure. That's the craft. Yeah. So I had, and the run was long enough in the gate. And Declan Conlon and Don Bradfield were just glorious. They're good sparring partners, to be fair. Ah, uh, and we had, a, we had a wonderful time. And the audiences were on their feet. And, and, just, and Tom, most importantly, Tom was chuffed with it. And his way of telling me this was I went out to see him. Uh, he invited us out to Sunday lunch, and I was a bit earlier. I was fashionably early, as, as opposed to fashionably late. So it was at two, so I turned up at half past. So I thought, that's right. So Tom greeted me and said, and I said, are you happy? He said, yes, I think Don Bradfield is the best Mona ever. Declan Conlon is possibly the best JPW. Would you like a drink? So that was never ending. And also, you know, so so the part you're talking about, like Hugh and translations. By the way, for the record, uh, Brian Field wanted me to play Hugh, and I think it's because. I had got to know him in Glenties at the Glenties Summer School because we did a lot of free work every year there. And he always came to Glenties. And that's how I got to know him as a man. We great, great fun, wonderful. Um, and he did say to me, well, will you play Big Hugh? And I said, and Anne, his wife, was there. And I said, I'm far too young, Brian. I'd like you to play it. And Anne's nephew, Conal Morrison, yes. 
was directing it and he asked me to do it because Connell and I have worked together a few times. And we did it and it was it was a fine production, but I was too young. Right. So I never felt I played it. This is interesting. You really do know what you That's should play. That's one that I want to go back to. That's okay. a part. I've just seen Kieran Hines play it and I went, That's what it's about. And Kieran is older and he's got more gravitas and it is it time you shouldn't play stuff. And I did it because I was asked to do it and very honoured and I did it on the Abbey <coughs> stage, blah, blah, and it was fine. But no, no, it, I just... Actually, I wasn't talking about... I wasn't helped by the set design. Okay. The set design was... I could see what the woman was doing. And she, you know that wood that's in the Abbey? Yes. She kind of matched it and put sort of slats up, like trees almost, as if it was a field or whatever. But actually what they managed to do was they dwarfed everybody who stood in front of them. So a friend of mine, Jeff Gould, he says, I walked into the theatre, lad. I looked at the set and I went, oh, Jesus, it won't like that set, no. And he said, the first 20 minutes they're all, big hue this and big hue that and big hue the other. And he said, you walked in and you were like a fucking dwarf. He said, you were fucked before you opened your mouth. Mm. And I felt that I was fighting something, and I didn't know what it was yeah. because, I like one of the things I do know I have is stage presence, and I look bigger than I am, yeah. which is what it is. I mean, there was a woman said to me once a funny story against myself when I played Macbeth. I was depressed because I, there was nobody listening. The students were just like, and I was sitting in my dressing room, and and Alwyn Foyer was playing Lady Macbeth, and she said, "I'm getting worried about you. You're getting." I was quite dark. My daughter was born, by the way, on the opening night of Macbeth in the Olympia. Wow. So there's another story. Um, she reminds me of it sometimes, <laughs> too. Uh, but uh, Alwyn said, there's a woman out in the bar raving about you. Go out and enjoy it. Cheer you up. So I walk out, and you, this won't come across on the radio, but she's just about to take a ring. She sees me come, she, she goes, are you the fella that played Macbeth? I said, I am. She said, Jesus, you're a great disappointment. <laughs> so I said to her, I'll take that as a compliment. She said, what do you mean? I said, you obviously thought I was six foot four and handsome, and I'm not. <laughs> I love it. So anyway, so no, no that, that hue didn't work. And, and anyway, I don't want to be blaming other people. I wasn't ready, and I was too young. And that's a part I can play in 10 years' time. And I, I would intend to. Very interesting. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. So that's that's yeah, the the Irishman I was ready for because it's more me anyway. Yeah. I, I know that guy. Like I know them all. Yeah. You know that fucking dangerous dark side of Ireland. I know it. It's what Tom wrote about all the time. Yeah. And I grew up in it, so I know it. Like. Yeah. He's amazing. Yeah, it's a special talent. Um, and then the world with Farris. See story against myself I read the world with Farris and I couldn't make head nor tail of it and I was friendly with Garrett Lombard and Aaron Monaghan who were the original two and uh, they both rang me and said have you been offered you I heard you've been offered I said yeah I said I don't know I said you fucking idiot it's brilliant so they persuaded me to do it <laughs> and I mean that was just phenomenal but then everything about that was right it's a brilliant piece of writing, but the right director was found. Michael Murphy directors. Yeah. And you needed someone like Michael Murphy. And this is where Gary Hines is clever. She knows what she shouldn't direct. She's going, why would I direct that when Michael Murphy can do a better job? Yeah. So she got him in to do it. And of course, we, myself and Michael go back a long way. We were in the Abbey together in 95 in the Comedy of Errors. So, like, so we know each other for a long time. Yeah. Um, and the lads were fantastic. What do you look for in a director or when are things going well in a relationship between you and a director or, or indeed when are things not going so well yeah well I've had both um, well the first thing I, I want from a director is I want them to be prepared I don't like people who are not prepared because I'm prepared and some of them are not so if you come in the first day and, and I smell you're unprepared we're fucking off to bad start like right right because then I'd be judgmental. Because <laughs> I am. Um, that's the first thing. Be prepared. The second thing is, be prepared to change your mind. If someone has a better idea than you, 
whether you're the director or the actor, take it. Yeah. Have the sense and the humility. Have the sense. John Crowley, who's one of the best directors I ever worked with, I did the worst audition in my life for John Crowley. And then to make it even more, he was for The Crucible. And then to make it even worse than that, he asked me to do a Devon accent. So I was bad in my own accent. I was a hundred times worse in the Devon accent. And he cast me and, I, and he told me, we're having a point later on, I said, he said, you know, you did the worst fucking audition ever. And I said, I know. I said, why did you cast me? And he said, anybody who changes my mind about a play, I cast. And he said, I asked you a question. And the question was, who is Marshall Herrick? And the answer is, he's a guy who plays a really small part in the play. And my answer was, he's John Proctor's best friend. And go. he said, why do you say that? And I took him through the play and the journey of Herrick through the play. And I said, he's the only one who gets pissed. And the reason he gets drunk in a puritanical society, mm. it's anathema to them. They drink cider, but they don't drink, they drink it like we drink tea. Yeah. Uh, they don't drink to get pissed. They're Puritans. And I said, he's drunk in that scene because he cannot abide what has happened and he hasn't any power to do anything about it. So that's why he cast me. So, so that's the kind of director that would come into a room and you would say something as an actor and they go, oh, Jesus, that's a great idea. That's the second thing. Yeah. The worst kind of director is a director who comes in and they have their vision and you, the puppet, fit into that vision. I'm not interested in those people at all yeah. because we are creative artists. I know we, I know we pay tax. Yeah. We shouldn't, nor should directors, but we do. And the reason I do the job is the walking down by the river, coming up with ideas, finding ways to say things, and then taking that into a rehearsal room, somebody else helping me to make it better, and my colleagues and myself working together. Yeah. And allowing, so the most important thing about a rehearsal room is that it should be safe. And what safe means is you're allowed to be bad. You're allowed to be bad. Actors are the worst people in the world, and I'm one. We find it very hard to be bad, like because we're always kind of showing off. Like, yeah. You know. And actually, the rehearsal room is about trying something that's anathema to you because someone suggests it, and seeing if it works. Yeah. As opposed to being a blocker. And actors can be blockers, but directors can be blockers, and that's just as bad. In fact, that's worse because mm. you get around actors. But if a director is a blocker, you kill creativity in the room. And then the actors just go, I mean, actors are very, generally, actors are very generous. But they're a bit like Irish people. We're very friendly, but we'll kill you slowly. Because we go, after a while, we just get pissed off. Yeah. We go, this is boring. There's no creativity happening here. Yeah. And you know what? Great actors are not ten a penny. And great directors are not great ten a penny. And great writers are not ten a penny. So, I'm not saying every one time I go into a room I should be, like you have to be, you have to, a job is a job and you do it and you go on. But the great directors allow actors, they make actors better than they are. I'd love to pick up on what seems to me to be a bit of a more recent trend, a very happy trend, in that uh, there's been a lot of international elements to your theatre work in the last little while and kind of having not conquered Ireland you know <laughs> but, but having established yourself as yeah. one of our main players one of our that's just aging <laughs> but how do you feel about the the international stuff now well uh, it's a bit like the Ouroboros thing very often in our business stuff is inflicted on you for dint of the fact that you can't get work so I haven't worked in Ireland since last April okay that's April 12 months I'm yeah. talking about. So the last play I did in Ireland, um, I did do a one-man Beckett show in the West Cork fit-up for Jeff, but that, that was something that I had done before with Conal Morrison. Um, the last show I did on the Gate stage was for Michael Colgan's Going Away. So that's last April 12 months, and it was a Brian Freel play, after play, appropriately. Yeah. And it was fantastic. Derby Crotty with Marco Rowe directing, and it was a great experience. But I couldn't get arrested. Wow. So that's a fact because, look, there's been a huge change in regime in both the Abbey and the Gate. There's been a change in philosophy in both the Abbey and the Gate. Um, the Abbey, it seems to me, are doing very few plays. They're doing adaptations of books, films, whatever, and they're coming back and they're and doing very well. But there's nothing in it for me. I'm, I'm a proper sort of, give me 
meat and two veg play. Yeah. Right. Maybe I'm, maybe I need to change, but they still do that here in this country in the UK. They still like the play. Yeah. And it's bigger, so they can afford to play with the stuff that the Abbey is doing and do because there's way more people and there's way more theatres. Ireland is small. Like if you don't work for the Abbey or the Gate or Druid. You're talking about one show a year with Rough Magic and then your own company, Rise, for example. In 2010, I made a speech to the art to, at the Irish Times Theatre Awards that the Arts Council's philosophy was wrong. And I think I'm right. Because they cut 12 companies in Dublin, as well as other places. Yeah. So the foundation of writing, particularly, by the way, the foundation of writing, directing, acting, etc., all that work is gone. Now, there are subsequently other companies come up, but they're doing two hundreds and three hundreds. We were doing plays with nine and ten people. All the companies I'm talking about. Uh, I'm off on a rant now. That's so all right. anyway, we like rants. So the point is, we are now we are now paying for that in 2018. There's a lot less work out there than there was ten years ago. Yeah, absolutely. So people like me who are sort of we've honed our craft. We're in our fifties. We're at, we're at the top of our game. There's no work for us. Right. Like in England, for example, they would say, okay, so we call the actor John Doe, right? So John Doe has crafted, he's now in his 50s. Let's do Macbeth around him. Let's do Richard III around him. Let's do our, our horror or what, right? That doesn't happen in Ireland because of the change in regime, first of all, we might as well never have existed. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? So look, the international dimension to my career, and I'm very grateful. A lot of it has toured with Druid, was a lot of it, which was fantastic. I did a play by, which you were in, called Myrmidons, yes. by Mike Poulton. Mike is, you should go and see Imperium, it's fantastic, about Cicero. Mike and I have remained friends. So I've been over here twice doing Wallenstein and uh, King Lear with Mike in Chichester Festival and then subsequently in New York. And this time, it's Michael Grandage. And this is just one of those things that I was offered. So I'm here, and it's fantastic. But it looks like if I want to work, I have to stay in the UK. And here's a question that most interviewers only ever ask the women. For you, with a family at home, to be here, mm. how tricky is it? I mean, my dad has stories of kissing a, a, you know, a headshot of Ray goodnight every yeah, night for well, months and months at a time. And there's your board over there. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's not easy. Uh, I'm lucky in the sense that I have had a good career in Ireland when the kids were growing up. My son is now 18. He's kind of gone off on his own jaunt. He doesn't need me. Yeah. I mean, I miss him, but yeah. he doesn't need me as much. My daughter is 15. She's a very mature 15-year-old. She's, she's grand. So, actually, it's the marriage that, that it's hard on. Yeah. It's, you know, it's Elaine and me it's hard on. But Elaine has been over and she'll be over again next week and I'll go back. I mean, in rehearsals it was fine. If I stay here, it would be a case of being here Monday to Friday and going home every weekend. Yeah. Which kind of exists now in well, the era easier. of Ryanair that, it's that didn't 30 yeah. years ago, 40 years ago. Well, as long as Ryanair lasts. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's getting more expensive again, though. Yeah. You know, there was a time you got 20 quid tickets. Those days are gone. <laughs> Finally then, you've spoken about another go at Hugh in your future, what else would you like to achieve? Is there any burning ambition out there for still projects, roles, well, directing? I, well, yeah, the directing one is a funny one. Um, I think at this stage of my career, I want to veer into film yeah. and TV to earn some money, number one. But actually, there's some great stuff in TV now. and. Uh, like I'd love something like Inspector Frost L for me like yeah like an Irish um, what you call it uh, Columbo <laughs> something like that would be great now so yeah. I hope writers 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 I, I have kind of ideas like that in terms of plays look I've been very lucky as you said I've played some great parts um, I would love it I would do the Geely concert again if I got a chance I just think it it's like playing Hamlet, I suppose, when you're yeah. young. You'd always want to do it again, wouldn't you? Because <laughs> it was great. Like, cause it's, yeah. it's satisfying. It's, it's fulfilling. Yeah. I suppose it's like repainting the painting. And you don't come along very often. And those kind of parts, there's not a hundreds of them. Like, yeah. You know? 
and we are blessed in Ireland, or we have been blessed in Ireland with playwrights. Yeah. But the way things are going, you're going, you know, all those playwrights had little companies here, there, and everywhere to do their plays, to to hone their craft. If those companies aren't out there, where do they hone their craft? I mean, I know one, for example. And uh, were you involved in Death of Harry Leon? No. No. Conal Quinn, fantastic player. He's given it up. Mm. He couldn't get anyone to do it because his plays are big. Like he's got nine, ten characters, and he go. If those plays aren't being done, the playwright can't write. So. I'm worried. I'm worried about the future in terms of that. So in a way, I'm kind of going, I need a pension fund. I need to earn some money. So I, I'm actually being, I, I'm being more practical now. Right. I'm going, okay, I'm going to stay in England because this is where the work is. Hopefully it'll work out and I need to veer towards TV. Yeah. And then maybe in five years time, I'll reassess and go, okay, now I want to play A, B or C. Yeah. But at the moment, that's not where I'm at. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating sweep. Dennis, I'm so delighted that we got the chance to have the chat. It's been pleasure, a real pleasure. pleasure. Really, really appreciate Thanks, it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. So there you have it, the great Dennis Conway. So wonderful to catch up with Dennis over in London on the brief trip and delighted that he found the time to squeeze in a podcast chat like this. Just such a great guy. It's such an interesting take on his career and his life through the business, his approach to the work, everything about it. I just I really, really enjoyed that chat. Dennis is a fantastic dude and I'm a big big fan. So look, that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of the theatrical goings-on around the country. At the Abbey Theatre, it's Jimmy's Hall. Up the road at the gate, it's the Snapper. Up at the Gaiety Theatre, it's Riverdance still doing their residence there for the summer. At the Board Gosh, Wicked continues there. At Smock Alley Theatre, the last couple of chances to catch Idlewild by Jimmy Murphy from Rex Ryan's new company, Glass Mask. And also the Shockron is doing incredible business up there as well, hearing great reports from that show too. At the Viking out in Clontarf, your last chance to catch two by Jim Cartwright and that'll be followed by My Real Life starring Don Witcherly definitely worth checking that one out and up at Bewley's in the lunchtime slot they have Roman Fever starring the great Karen Ardiff heading south to the Everyman in Cork they have the Lonesome West starring our own Gus McDonough and out west at the Galway Town Hall what good is looking well when you're rotten on the inside by the brilliant Emma O'Grady and then up north at the Lyric in Belfast it's A Night with George followed by In the Window so look that is us that is episode 40 would you believe in the books we will of course be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers but in the meantime this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast for Angus Og McAnally I'm Angus Og McAnally we'll see you next week